0: Well, it's very good to see you. It's fun to have people slowly coming back. What's interesting, because of the way the vaccine works, some of the older folks are coming back sooner than the younger folks. It's just not what I, you know, it's the, you expect them to be more cautious, but as the Brits say, they've already been jabbed, and so they can come. And um, it's, it's just a hoot. I've, I saw people this morning I hadn't seen in over a year, which is just, although some of them I may not recognize because of masks, you know. Uh, so people walk in, I think, who are they? I, yeah, I don't know. But it's good to have you back as we begin Holy Week. Um, to me, this is a special week. Obviously, it's significant on the church calendar. If you grew up in a liturgical background, it, it was very heavy emphasis. And sometimes we who are non-liturgical kind of dismiss that, but we shouldn't. This this idea of preparing ourselves over several days for an event like this is extremely important. And I hope you will um, Take time to read the Gospels uh, about uh, the Passion Week. Uh, Take time, if you can, to join us with the service and hope that uh, you'll pray that the Lord will use Easter this year to do in your heart what He would have for you. So today we're going to look at the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday. We're going to look at it from the book of Luke because we've been going through the book of Luke and we're going to finally uh to end up with how does what, the way Jesus responded to these circumstances how does that imply for our life so if you'll turn in your bibles if you have one to Luke chapter 18 we're going to start in verse 31 when you read the gospels uh you you There is a turn that occurs in the gospels when Jesus, as one gospel says, sets his face to Jerusalem. There is this movement of the play, if you think it in those terms, when when he turns his attention to moving toward the city of Jerusalem. And and it's more than geographical. It implies the most significant turn of events in the Gospels because he knows what's going to occur there. And I want you to see this as we start in this journey for the uh, Palm Sunday. So, journey to Jerusalem, Luke 18, beginning with verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will arise again. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. That last verse, by the way, is a huge encouragement to me. Because I don't know about you, there are so many times in my life that I missed the whole banana. I mean, just, and you look back and think, how could I be so clueless? It's kind of nice to know that the disciples did too. But notice, he, he turns his attention, and he's going up to Jerusalem, and look at what he says, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. That's why his turn to Jerusalem is so significant. Jesus is saying, this is the beginning of of the most significant chapter of the book. Because this is when all that has been prophesied in the Old Testament about the messianic king will come to fruition. This is when the Davidic promise, 2 Samuel Samuel, 2 Samuel Chapter, it's the third time. I get a little. 2 Samuel 7 prophesied that that a a descendant of David would rule over all the nations and restore the nation of Israel to its glory. And they had become students of all of those passages, beginning back in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, even the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. All of these hugely significant passages that the Jews hung on to because they knew that it prophesied that God would complete the promises he had made and so in Isaiah when it spoke of the king they uh, the wonderful counselor the mighty God prince of peace Isaiah 9 they 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 saw all those passages connected and Jesus announces by the way we're going to go to Jerusalem all going to happen all going to happen And they got so caught up in that they didn't hear anything else he said. Because ironically he said, and the son of man, myself, his favorite title for himself am going to be beaten, abused, spat upon and murdered. And they didn't hear it. How could they not hear it? I think we too quickly disregard the context of the first century. The Jewish people had been They were God's chosen people. God told them directly, I have chosen you of all nations. They spoke to the father of Israel, Abraham, and said, from you will come not just one nation but many nations as as multitudinous as the sand on the seashore. In other words, God had told the nation of Israel that they were incredibly significant and that he would raise up from among them a king who would, who would establish them in the greatness that hadn't been known since David. And yet, and yet, they were defeated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and carried off into captivity. They had had their temple... Um, Uh, Horribly desecrated in 167 uh, uh, B.C., the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And then the Romans come. And And the Romans were great at subjugating people. They were an incredibly violent empire that used intimidation to subjugate everywhere they conquered. Their, their legions were feared by all of the world. And, and, and they developed what to us seems uh, uh, insignificant, but technologies for their day that caused every, every army to fall before them. And then when they conquered, they would place their puppet governments over them. And if anybody crossed them, they were crucified. Crucifixion was a normal part of Roman life. It was how they liked to murder people, not just because it was excruciatingly painful, but because it was a spectator sport intended to create fear and intimidation of the people. And then sometimes they would impale the bodies around the city just to make sure no one forgot. So the Jewish people who still held on to the hope and belief that God would do what he promised had been living under an oppression the likes of which we can't understand. Because everywhere they looked, there were Roman soldiers. Everywhere they looked, there were limitations on their freedom. Everywhere they looked, they experienced the reality that even though God had told them they would be a great nation, in reality, they were a subjugated people under oppression from an incredibly powerful and sometimes cruel government. And the disciples... Hear Jesus say, we're going to go into Jerusalem and all that the promise of foretold is going to happen. And at that point, their imaginations take off and they can't hear anything. We know from the other gospels, they say, hey, Lord, when you take the throne, can we be on both sides of you? They have visions of grandeur and excitement. And and Jesus says, and by the way, I'm going to be killed. And they just can't hear it. If you skip on down to verse 34, Uh, excuse me chapter 19 verse 11 another wisp of what's coming while they were listening to this he went on to tell them a parable notice the next sentence because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once this is where the disciples are all they can hear is the kingdom is coming All they can hear is the king is going to take the throne. All they can hear is Rome is finally going to be defeated. All they can hear is we are finally going to have all the power and the wealth and sovereignty that we deserve. According to the very promises of God. And they hear nothing else. They hear nothing else. So the days go on and Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in chapter 19 verse 28. I don't have time to read the whole passage. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, two small communities outside of Israel, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it tell them the Lord needs it now remember this is kind of like you walking up someone's house and starting their car you know it would be natural for the owner to say "Uh, can I ask what you're doing and notice that Jesus reputation is so powerful that when they hear that Jesus wants it they let him have it and they replied so they went ahead and they found it just as they told them. Verse 33, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying my colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now to appreciate what's going on here, you have to have been reading the prophet of Zechariah. When you look at the Old Testament, there are the major prophets, and they're called major because they're longer. That's all it means. It doesn't mean they're more important. It just means they're longer. Uh, And there, there are the minor prophets, and Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, but it is one of the most significant Old Testament prophets about future things. And in Zechariah chapter 9, let me read to you what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Israel. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, the capital. See, behold, your king comes to you. Righteous, having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, which is Israel, the northern kingdom, and the war horses from Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and the battle bow will be broken because he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river and the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. When they see Jesus sending for a donkey colt, They recognize that he is intentionally fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy about the Messianic king who would not only ride in on a colt, but would use that opportunity to establish himself as the king of Israel and extend their reign according to all the promises of the Old Testament. And they were ecstatic. And the crowds picked up on it because the crowds throw their clothes on the ground in front of the donkey as a demonstration of their reverence for this one who is the king, who is the sovereign, who is gonna establish a reign and fulfillment of all that God has promised. And there is ecstasy on the road, excitement and thrill. Can you imagine what they felt like after all these years of oppression, after all these years of abuse, Jesus comes in and essentially holds up a sign and says, I am he. I am he. And all that you've read about me is going to come to pass. They were beyond themselves. So verse 35, they brought... uh, To Jesus threw their cloaks on it and he went and the people spread their cloaks on the road verse 37 when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voice of all the for all the miracles that they had seen blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest uh, they, they're quoting from the Messianic Psalms and demonstrating that they recognize that he is the king prophesied in the Old Testament who is the king of peace, who will bring peace that they long for. And the Pharisees recognized verse 39, what's going on, and they said, teacher, tell them to shut up. Rebuke your disciples because they're, they're implying something that we don't approve of. And Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Because Jesus is not only the Messiah for the nation of Israel, he's the Messiah, the king for all people. And he's even the Messiah, the king of all of creation. Because creation recognizes who he is and will celebrate his sovereignty. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why? He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The book of Matthew makes a clear point that the nation of Israel was in many ways offered the Messianic kingdom, but when they rejected the Messiah, they lost out on that privilege. And Jesus is saying, if you had known what was offered, but you've missed it. The days will come, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus here picks up the theme from the Olivet Discourse, his sermon on the Mount of Olives when he, he predicts the destruction of Israel. And like many of the biblical prophecies, it's a twofold fulfillment. The first fulfillment is immediate. In AD 70, the Romans will sack the nation, the city of Jerusalem, and destroy it so completely that they will literally tear down the temple, that 15-story edifice on the top of the Temple Mount and throw all of those massive stones, some uh, estimated 11 feet by 15 feet by 60 feet, over the edge of the Temple Mount to totally bring destruction to the city of Jerusalem. Some estimates say, estimates say that as many as 1.1 million Jews were murdered by the Romans in AD 70. And this one that they thought would bring the end of the oppression, in many ways, didn't do that at all. Because God was bringing judgment. And by the way, the destruction of, of, at AD 70 was significant in another way because when Jesus, when God allowed the temple be destroyed, he signified the fact that the sacrificial system was no longer necessary because the sacrificial lamb had died. You get that? The whole focus of Israel's worship had been the tabernacle and the temple because that's where they sacrificed on the Day of Atonement and all those other sacrificial uh, offerings because that's how they demonstrated their need for God's salvation and forgiveness and their devotion to Him. But when Jesus had died on the cross, that all is fulfilled. And so God allowed for the temple to be destroyed, never to be built again. Because God is demonstrating that that work is done. So Jesus prophesies about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Obviously, a number of things happen in Holy Week, and we'll talk about that in the course of the week. If you will, turn to chapter 23, verse 26. Let's move on. They've, Jesus has been through multiple kangaroo courts. He's been beaten. He's been scorched, scourged excuse me, scourged, with 39 lashes. They quit at 39 because their studies had shown that they could go that far before people died. The beating uh, with lacerations was so extreme that the blood loss typically caused those who had experienced it to lose consciousness. Which is significant to what happens here. As they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know the story of Simon? Isn't that interesting? Because this is the only reference we know of is this occurrence in the Gospels about Simon Cyrene. Obviously, he became significant because it gives his name. Um, but Jesus, having been scourged, having gone through such horrible abuse, is not capable of carrying the cross piece for the cross as was normally done in Roman executions. And so when he collapsed, they gave it to Simon, and Simon carried it in in his place. And a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The prophecies of the nation of of Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem's destruction were immediate in AD 70 but Jesus picks up a theme that goes to the last days as well and when you read all of scripture you see especially the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel you see that there is yet a coming judgment in the last days when the when the people of Israel will beg for death because destruction is so extreme and Jesus is prophesying about that as well. Verse 32, two other men, both criminals were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along the criminals, one on his right, and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes, casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the Sosan of God. Don't miss that. Jesus' greatest opponents had no problem acknowledging the miraculous he had accomplished. They they did not debate whether he'd healed people from, from blindness or disease or demonic possession. They did not debate that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Today we debate because 2,100 years later we're so much better attuned at knowing what happened back then, right? But the people at that time even his greatest enemies didn't question whether he accomplished those things. So what do they sneer about? Well, if he can do miracles in other people's lives, why can't he do a miracle in his own? In my opinion, they're saying that hoping to God he doesn't. It's not a confident statement. Because deep down they're worried that he might. the soldiers also came up and mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice about him which said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Again, aren't you the Christ, the Messiah, the king? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. One of the real gifts that God has given in the story of Jesus' crucifixion is the thief on the cross is a demonstration of what this story means to you and me. Because the man closest to Jesus at the point of his death experiences the blessings of what Jesus came to do. And you look at it, he obviously had not read the four spiritual laws. He didn't use all the right words. He didn't, he didn't offer a special prayer. What does he do? He believes who Jesus is and looks to him for what Jesus alone can do. Sometimes we get a little too caught up in the theological particulars of how someone should come to faith. But but ultimately, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. What did he see in the thief's heart? An admission of his need. I'm here because I deserve it. An admission of who Jesus is. You're the Christ, the Son of God. And a request that Jesus would do for him What Jesus alone can do, remember me. And Jesus uttered, one of the older guys in the first service came with tears in his eyes, said, I can't tell you how much that verse means to me because I fear death. But Jesus said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. One of the realities is we don't know exactly what happens when we die, but what we do know because of the thief of the cross is we're not hanging in some ethernet somewhere waiting for God to come get us. At the very instant when our life leaves our bodies, our presence is with the Lord. And the first one there is the thief on the cross. Who is famous. And, and notice, notice how he lived out his obedience. Notice how he demonstrated his salvation. Notice all the good things he did for God. Well, Andy, he didn't have a chance. I mean, he was dying. Because salvation is totally dependent on what Christ has done for us, not what we've done for him. Don't miss that. The thief on the cross demonstrates the very purpose of Jesus' coming and all the response that he demands from us. And that is to trust who he is, acknowledge our need, and embrace what he has given and Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. What incredible statement. What incredible statement. So what does that have to do with our discipleship? Throughout this series, we've been looking at characteristics of Christ. And excuse me just a second. It's a guitar pick. And it's just been annoying me. I feel so much better now. Um, it just, it just, I, I, I feel better. I hope y'all do. It just, just, it's, it was, it was I know, James. he did it just to mess with me, you know, it's, it's squirrel. But at any rate, um, this whole series has taken the characteristics of Christ and seen how Do they instruct what God wants in my life? And we're going to look at that. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? they replied, some John the Baptist and others say Elijah and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Again, notice, every explanation was supernatural. Every explanation was supernatural. The arrogance of the 21st century is that we think we have a better explanation for what happened than the eyewitnesses of the day that occurred. The universal opinion of who Jesus was and what he accomplished. And the day that he lived was that he was supernatural because of the things that he did. But today in all of our brilliance, we make up stories to explain it away. Let's keep going. But what about you, Jesus says, verse 20? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers... You're the Christ of God, the Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life." Another one of those prophecies which they don't get. But look at verse 23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who stand here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And that passage is fulfilled immediately after in the story of the transfiguration when they see the King in his glory. Because when you've seen the king, you've seen the kingdom. Did you see what he says? If, you're gonna, if, if you'd come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, one of the things that I'd never thought about until this week. Did you catch the fact this all occurred before they they never understood that jesus was going to die on the cross the text is very clear he told them repeatedly and they never figured it out they never understood it so when he said take up your cross they thought of it in the context of what they had experienced being jews in israel in the first century what was that the cross was the means by one of the primary means by which the Roman government subjugated a people. It was the way that they demonstrated that you are under submission of our divine authority. Because, of course, Caesar thought he was God, like so many politicians. And that was just a little bitty joke. One partisan, either way, just a little bitty joke. It's the third time. Work with me. And um Jesus is is stepping into this life in a way and into this narrative in a way that they had never understood. But he says, take up your cross. See, I think they had seen friends take up crosses. I think they had known people in Jerusalem that had been sentenced to death on the cross because it was a normal way that the crucifixion was normal in Roman cities. And they knew that, that the Roman government would make the victim of the crucifixion carry his cross through the city. If you go with us to Israel, you go on the Via Dolorosa. It's a long walk over to Gal- what is traditionally understood to be Golgotha. And it's a long walk because it was intended to shame the victim and communicate to all of the community that this person has dared gone against Rome. And because they had, they are going to be subjugated and destroyed. When you took up the cross, you proved to the world that you understood that you were subject to the king. And you had now powerful before the king. And he was sovereign over your life. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me. Now this, this, notice salvation came when the thief on the cross placed his faith and hope in Christ. But Jesus, in describing uh, the whole walk of a discipleship, says, discipleship, following me, means denying yourself. Why is that? I thought, I thought Christianity was supposed to make me fulfilled. Well, it does. But oftentimes, the greatest means of uh, fulfillment is by denying ourselves, right? Take up our cross every day in submission to the king who rode in on that donkey. And acknowledge his sovereignty and give myself to serving him. And in doing so, to follow him in the way of the cross. Discipleship includes self-denial. Discipleship is is a lifetime of learning what it means to serve the King. Discipleship is a is a is a life of setting aside my own desires, denying them so that I can experience what Jesus offers. Um, when I was at the seminary, I, I've talked a lot about working for Dr. Walford because I worked for him the longest, but I also served briefly the, the third president of the seminary, Donald Campbell. Donald Campbell is one of the kindest men you would ever meet. and. Um, When he started, we started going through all the old publications. And And the the seminary had a, our version of the Four Spiritual Laws was a little pamphlet called How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. It was written by Haddon Robinson, one of the greatest preachers of American history. And and, um, it was beautifully done, but we changed the name with all due respect to Dr. Robinson. Because we worried that people thought, might think when you read how to have a happy and meaningful life that serving Jesus is all about me. Jesus said in John 10.10 10, I've come that you might have an abundant life and certainly it's abundant life but we have minimized the Christian life at times to just another way to make us happy. And the last thing we want to do is deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow him. And Sometimes you and I fall into the trap of thinking that because we have embraced Jesus, He is our servant to make us happy. But the sad thing is when we treat Him that way, we miss out on His very best. Because most of us have learned that the greatest parts of life come through the self-denial. The greatest experiences of life come through the sacrifices some of the greatest experiences of life come through the difficulties that god allows in our lives that reshape us and strip away our immaturity and our silliness and help us understand that if we have nothing else but christ we have what we need there are countless stories in this room right now that people could come up and talk about. The, the, the cross that they were given to bear and at the time seemed unbelievably health heavy. But in retrospect, they look back at that cross and that experience and see how God used it to strip away idols, how God used it to take away false supports, how God used it to Keep them from finding their joy in silly little things and instead help them to see that when you have him, you've got enough. Because the way of the cross is the way of the ultimate peace. It's the way of ultimately following him. And Jesus did ride in on that donkey as the conquering king, but his mission first was to provide salvation for broken people through his death on the cross so that we in following him might find our way of the cross as well. Is there fulfillment in it? Absolutely. Is there joy in it? The apostle Paul says, inexpressible. But you don't find that joy if you keep holding on to your way. You find it in denying yourself and following him. And if the king, the king of the universe, the very son of God, could take a cross, maybe you and I can too. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our natural instincts are not to run to the cross. Just as your disciples were shocked when they saw you on it, we are shocked when they hear you have it for us as well. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from following you in a shallow way, but instead we would deny ourselves. Take up your cross and follow you into all that you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.